0: Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. This week, we're gonna bring you something a little bit different. These are some conversations that we recorded at the weekend at an event we had here in Cambridge, which was about power in the digital age. It's about the world of Facebook, Zuckerberg, Google, all of those incredibly rich, often very young men in Silicon Valley do they really rule the world? We're going to hear a few different takes on that question from some of the most interesting people studying it. I'm going to tell you a few things that I learned at this event, and I learned a lot. One was that in California now, if you sign a prenup before you get married, you have to list your intellectual property along with everything else. So with the houses and the cars and the kids and the dogs, You also have to put down your app ideas, your dog walking app or whatever it is, because when the marriage breaks up, that's what people are going to fight about now, who owns the app. It was a very buzzy event, as you'll hear, there were a lot of people there and a lot of chat. We grabbed some of the speakers over lunch, pulled them out, some of them while they were still eating, to ask some questions. So you'll hear a bit of the noise in the background, but this is right at the heart of the event.
1: My name is Lawrence Quill. I'm from England originally, but have lived in Silicon Valley for 15 years. And I'm a professor of political theory at San Jose State University. So you've seen the people who run that valley and now run
0: the world change their worldview. And one of the things that they always used to say was they were going to rescue us from Big Brother. That was the the famous ad, the Apple ad. So what happened to that idea that they were going to rescue us from Big Brother?
1: Well, I think it's a combination of different elements. I think for a long time, there was an explicit disregard of politics, a suspicion of politics, and that was because of important cultural and historical reasons. A great number of people that were fascinated by computers in the 1970s were student activists who lost faith in the political process. But I think over time, as many of these individuals became billionaires they became extremely successful they realized that if they wanted to achieve further financial success or in fact change the world still which is I think an explicit goal of many of them they would have to get involved with government in some form or another so I think that's why the big brother metaphor has become confused or at least is no longer as helpful as perhaps it once was.
0: And what do you think they're scared of now? So if once upon a time they were scared of coming from the counterculture, they were scared of the man, government, whatever. Now they're kind of semi in bed with government.
1: What are they frightened of? Well, I think they're frightened of the same thing happening to them as happened to Microsoft. I think they're very worried about losing influence. We're talking about different sorts of companies, search engines, an entity like Facebook. This is not the Microsoft corporation. But whereas once Microsoft had dominant market share, and now doesn't so much, I think what these companies are worried about is how to maintain their dominance. Because if you live in the valley, what becomes immediately apparent is that the dominance extends beyond the virtual world. So if you're a billionaire philanthropist, you can start to realise some of your dreams when you were an undergraduate student. You can invest $12 million in a medical establishment. You can start a new school. You get fetted by politicians who make you feel important and influential because you are, but it feels like you're shaping the world. And I think that's actually a key to understanding what's going on there, because I think that there's a continuity between what these companies want now, which is to carve out a portion of the world that they can control, and a lot of experimental utopian communities in the United States in the 18th and 19th century. So I think that also explains why so many billionaires want to buy an island or make an island or, or create a, a Google city, a, a, a town in, in their own image. I think that's the goal. So you say they don't want to be like Microsoft.
0: Well, Microsoft is still a very, very powerful company, and Bill Gates is still, depending on your measure, the richest person in the world. And he's doing that too. I mean, he's not building an island, and he's not trying to carve out part of the world to own but he's trying to conquer disease and he for a while he thought he was going to sort out the American problem with education so is this this next generation are they different from him do they look at him and think he's kind of old school or is it actually just going to repeat itself as they get older because they're still pretty young as they get older are they going to just look like Bill
1: Gates I think it's a really good question I think one of the things that's become apparent in the research that I've done is I realized just how not really recognizably progressive many of these internet people actually are. I think the people that started companies like Google and Facebook, you can certainly plot them on the kind of liberal progressive scale, but a good number of people that have started companies after that, I mean actually none of my students use Facebook they think that that's just old hat. They they use Snapchat and Instagram if they use anything at all. And email, you can forget it. I might as well use a carrier pigeon to communicate with these kids if I want to use email these days. But my point is a lot of up-and-coming young people in the valley, tech entrepreneurs, many of them are Republican as as well as Democrat, or many of them just don't see much of a difference between the parties and will back whichever candidates will help them reach their long-term goals.
0: The conversation about prenups and fighting over the apps was part of a bigger discussion about intellectual property, which sounds kind of heavy, and it was in a way, but most people, including me, actually, tend to think of intellectual property as what lawyers fight about, patents, stuff like that. One person said we should think that intellectual property is pretty much everything that we think and do these days. It's our data. And we're giving it away for free. We all have masses of intellectual property, and we're just handing it out. And this was how this guy put it. The data that we have is like the land. It's what we live on. And machine learning is the plow. It's what digs it up. And basically, what we've done is we've given it all away for free to the people who control the plows. To which someone said, well, what's the word for that? what do you call that kind of system? And the answer was, it's definitely not capitalism. So if you want to have a word for it, it's feudalism.
2: My name is Mireille Hildebrandt. I am a research professor at Free University Brussels on the subject of interfacing law and technology. I'm a part-time full professor of... Uh, smart environment, data protection, and the rule of law at the computer science department at a university in Nijmegen in the Netherlands.
0: So we've been talking at this conference about power, and I think there's a consensus here that quite a small number of people and a small number of corporations, maybe it's not a power that we've never seen before, but certainly we're probably not used to it in our lifetimes. You pr- maybe have to go back 100 years or more. We're talking about Mark Zuckerberg, we're talking about Facebook, we're talking about Google. What most frightens you about the world that we're entering, in which power is concentrated in these ways?
2: Actually, I'm most frightened that we have opened a Pandora box of networked technologies that are going to be interacting with each other, where these very powerful people that you're referring to, and that is, I think, both corporations but also states, have organized companies that are perfect for authoritarian states or uh, temporary authoritarian regimes to repeat the Holocaust. Forgive me for the boring and terrible metaphor, but I think you should organize society in such a way that this cannot happen again. And we are now organizing it to, to make it too easy. But my deepest concern is that these Machine learning algorithms, in combination with what some people call dumb algorithms that are deterministic and that you can predict more easily, have a dynamic of their own that even the, the companies that develop them and sell them and license them can no longer oversee. I think that's already the case. Maybe that's innovation, but something is not good because it is innovation. Something is good because it's good innovation. And I think here the foreseeability of what people do in daily life is uh, going back and the chance that we're going to be confronted with, for instance, power cuts, system breakdowns of critical infrastructure. I think that is my biggest worry.
0: So some of those worries people are familiar with I think they've kind of internalised the idea that banks created products before the crash in 2008 that they didn't understand, that they didn't know how to control, and that came back to bite them. But in relation to companies like Facebook and Google and this technology, people seem to still have this benign view. So if, if you're talking about banks, they would say, yeah, don't trust those guys. They don't know what they're doing. And yet with these corporations, on the whole, I think most people still think that they're their friends. Are we kind of... Just self-deceived about this? Are we just? Have we been blinded by it? So the convenience that this technology has given us. Because we're suspicious in some parts of our lives, and in other parts of our lives, we're just fine with it.
2: Two things. I think that people trust banks uh, very much because the security. When you, I'm I think in terms of bank accounts,
0: they just don't trust bankers. I think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it, that doesn't affect their behavior, so that that's quite concerning. When I open my online bank account, I'm always surprised that it is rounded about what I thought. And I'm waiting for the day that I will be seeing a, an account which doesn't fit, and I call the bank and they say, what do you mean? Everything fits here. I, I'm looking into the system. This is you. This is what you did. This is your... And then I have to prove something which is not provable, blah, blah, etc. So I'm rather afraid that people are for a number of reasons, trusting banks, the worry is about financial markets, so the whole system that's behind that there, I think people are more aware, but we have to live every day, so we don't think about it. With the social networks, I think uh, some people discriminate between social privacy and institutional privacy. You could say that people are now quite, and especially young people, are very savvy in protecting the privacy amongst their peers so their friends they know how to tune their privacy settings with regard to their peers three four five times a week actually there's research that shows this and the younger the better this is reputation management they do that very well what I don't realize is that these companies are having a business model on their behavioral data and that is more difficult to explain. It is easier to say, yeah, but that will result in a smooth user experience. And this is connected, of course, with the idea that the service is free. And it would be interesting to to rethink how we have to rebuild economic markets after we begin to realize that getting something for free in exchange for personal behavioral data has too many negative Uh, consequences. Now the negative consequences in terms of transparency, preemption of intent, discrimination, subliminal influencing, filter bubbles, problems with fake news are let's say obvious, but I'm also sort of convinced that once these systems begin to interact with each other, the owners of these systems, so the, the companies, are also not going to be able to in the end, control it and make money. So I'm very convinced by the, the security adage, select before you collect, while you collect, and after you collect. Any data that you collect is a risk. And if you put together a lot of data and then begin to train algorithms on them, they will find patterns. But it becomes increasingly difficult to figure out whether these patterns mean anything while after you begin to act on them, if you believe that they mean something, they will have their own dynamic. So I often use the phrase, there is uh, Thomas Merton, (laughs) who said, if men define a situation as real, it's real in its consequences, he's a famous uh, philosopher of science. We're now moving very fast to, or we're in a situation where, if machines define a situation as real, it is real in its consequences. And I'm not saying I'm against that, that would be a silly question, but I think it it changes the ground that we stand on, our knowledge.
0: There is a fear, a kind of age-old fear of artificial intelligence, sort of humanoid style robots who acquire a life of their own and, and spill out of our control. But what you're saying, and I think I share this view, is that it's a bit premature to worry about that. We should be worrying about these unintelligent machines, these algorithms, they're not they're not anything like human intelligent machines. But things can acquire a life of their own well before they become intelligent. They can escape our control. Am, am I right? Is, is that the thing that we should be worried about?
2: Yes. Let's frame it in terms of agency. So I can recognize that you are a particular person, an agent. You are not the same as as, as your wife or your daughter or your mother or your colleague. But these systems, where they begin and where they end is not entirely clear and changes. So they're polymorphous, they're mobile, but they do have agency. Not agency in the sense that they have deep thoughts or uh, emotions or feelings. They can simulate all that, all that. And they're getting very much better at that. They can simulate our feelings better than we can express our feelings. But it's all simulation and... um, This is another thing that frightens me because I'm a lawyer. I want to be able to address an agent and we have to think how to do that.
0: This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. When
3: you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over one million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.
0: There was a lot of talk at this event about Zuckerberg, Brin. Page. These men, I guess they're in their 30s now, who have more money than you could possibly imagine. And own, basically own, though they're publicly owned. These companies that they control, it's a kind of power that maybe we haven't seen for 100 years or more. One of the speakers said, what we have to remember is that even these people are going to die at some point. Even Bryn and Page aren't going to own Google forever. At some point, they'll die, and then Google will belong to someone else. That's how companies work, and we have to think about what the world will look like when the company exists and the founders have gone. And then I read this in The New Yorker this week. It's a piece by Tad Friend, who's gone to Silicon Valley to talk to all of the people in Silicon Valley, and there are a surprising number, who think you can buy your way out of death. They're trying to invent an immortality pill or machine that will stop them from aging, and it includes the Google guys. So this is from the piece. Sergey Brin was at an, a party, an immortality party in Silicon Valley, and he said, "I'm reading this book, Homadeus and it says on page 28 that I'm going to die." And homadeus is by Yuval Noah Harari. Some of you will have heard me talking to him on the very first episode of this podcast. Brin gave the crowd a briskly ambiguous nod. Yes, I was singled out for death. No, I'm not actually planning to die.
4: My name is Siva Vadianathan. I am the Robertson Professor of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. You're writing a book about Facebook? So where does Mark Zuckerberg end and Facebook begin? I'm not sure where Mark Zuckerberg ends and Facebook begins. Facebook is in so many ways an expression of Mark Zuckerberg's concerns and visions and dreams. Uh, He has, from the beginning, had such control over the company and, and has guided it so successfully that I don't see a lot of distance there. There may be a point when he decides to move like Bill Gates did away from his company. And so today, it's impossible to say that what Bill Gates wants from the world is reflected in Microsoft and vice versa. But right now, I would say that when Mark Zuckerberg is speaking about the world, you are likely to see something embodied in Facebook that shares that concern. And one of the striking
0: things about these kinds of companies, Google, Facebook, is they have a a vision, like you say, that they are the embodiment of a set of dreams, and they talk a lot about doing good, about being good. Is that also, do you think, an expression of the fact that they are so identified with actual human beings who presumably do sincerely believe these things? Hmm. And and in a way, are we therefore being misled? Because there is also a kind of
4: profit-making, an incredibly successful profit-making corporation behind that. I wrote a book about Google, and I'm, I'm writing a book about Facebook, because in both cases, I see those companies as exceptional. They share quite a bit, but they're also different. Uh, Google is run by two visionaries who work in partnership. Uh, they have their own talents and their own concerns and their own areas of specialization. And right now, Larry Page is the chief operating officer or the chief executive officer of of Google, uh, and so he might have the greater day to day influence, whereas Bryn might have a larger effect on long term planning and vision. In that sense, I see Google as an embodiment of a set of ideas and, in fact, an ideology. Uh, it's an ideology I've called Googleization that um, sees the world through a particular lens and tries to structure the world according to that lens. Facebook, I think, is different. I think Facebook is much more an, an expression of personality more than ideology. Although the extent to which Zuckerberg expresses ideology, that I think he learned from Google, from Bryn and Page, from Bill Gates, and from the culture in which he's been operating.
0: Would you call it a political ideology? Is it... Because that word has political connotations, or is this, I don't know post political
4: okay I absolutely see the ideology that Google expresses and the personality and ideology that Zuckerberg expressed as political the difference is they don't they deny the political valence of what they do um, there is a an, almost an, an insistence in that strata of Silicon Valley that what is going on is operating in some other field so there is an appeal to an imagined neutrality on almost academic distance in how Google's ideology gets expressed by the people at Google. There is a will to the social, a a sense that um, this is about connecting human beings no matter what those human beings want out of the world. That is the the core function of Facebook. And thus both institutions, I, I think in very bad faith, deny the political richness of their users and deny the political effects of what they do.
0: I don't want to get too sort of political theory geeky about this, but it's social media. And as you have just said, in, in a sense, the ideology is social. There is a sort of political ideology of the social, which is, I guess, socialism. I mean, that's one word for it. And yeah, sometimes people say about this new technology that it's having this weird double effect it's mm. enhancing inequality it's driving certain kinds of concentrations of power. Right, right. but there is an underlying social or even communal vision mm. are these is that second thing real is it is it actually there
4: uh, so Mark Zuckerberg is currently obsessed with the idea of community he's actually dropped the word "social from his public utterances and replaced it with community. But I don't get the sense that he's interrogating either of those concepts deeply or theoretically. in so many in so many ways, and for so many reasons, I wish Mark Zuckerberg had not dropped out of Harvard. He should have taken a political theory class. He should have read Hannah Arendt on the problem of the social because that's that's the social construct that he should be concerned with. It's the one that it's the field in which he plays, and I think you know beyond socialism it really is about the the flaws and the potential dangers of removing friction from a set of actors who aren't slowed by trust in institutions aren't slowed by tradition aren't slowed by deliberation the removal of friction which is what so much of what silicon valley is about uh, you know i think has Terrible unintended consequences, and that's I think what we're seeing with all of these different political externalities.
0: The last thing I learned was in a really gripping talk about how prices are set online, and I don't think I was the only one in the audience who went, What? So, we think certainly I thought that when you're online looking for a cheap flight or a cheap holiday or whatever, you search and you look for the best price because there's real competition out there. All of the providers are trying to undercut each other to offer you the best price so that you'll go to their site and buy there. Apparently not. There is no competition online. What all of those sites are doing are not trying to offer you the best price. They're trying to find out how much you're willing to pay. So each time you go online and search, what you're really doing is revealing to the machines what you're worth. And when they've worked out what you're worth, they'll set a price that's tailored to what they think they can gouge out of you. So every price is tailored to who you are, not to what the people who are supplying it think they can undercut each other with. So that means that when we're searching for the best price, we're not actually looking at them, they're looking at us. And the takeaway from this entire discussion was if you want to pay for stuff cheaply online, you can't look for cheap prices. You have to pretend to be poor. The poorer you can persuade the machines that you are, the cheaper it will be. And the person who gave this talk said, if you want an analogy for what it is to search online for prices, it's the Truman Show. We think we're doing something real. We're not. They're just watching us.
5: My name is Ron Deibert. I'm director of the Citizen Lab at the University of
0: Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs. So you believe that this technology at the moment advantages autocratic regimes and it's really bad for democracy in the sense that it's very damaging for civil society and that does go against what a lot of people I think believe for a long time that in the long run this is going to be good for democracy because it's about openness, it's about sharing information. So what is it at the moment and you've, you've studied this, you've experimented on in your, in your lab that you think makes this so bad for civil society?
5: I think that, first of all, it's important to state that that technology is not inherently biased toward one thing or another. It depends on who's using it and the context. And that's the important point of the research, I think, is that the context is changing very quickly. So in the early days, if you did a survey maybe 20 years ago of government policy towards the Internet, you'd find that most had no policies whatsoever. And those that did had a a laissez-faire approach. Keep the state out and the idea was to allow the internet to be a forum for economic innovation. You need to remove the government. Fast forward to today and not only does just about every government have a concern with the internet, cyber security is at the top of the agenda. Of course we also live in uh, the post 9-11 world with a kind of permanent state of emergency. Um, So the landscape has really changed around the technology. At the very same time that we're connecting, turning our digital lives inside out, governments have turned this enormous apparatus of their security agencies inward on all of us. The same applies to the context around authoritarianism. Back in the 1990s and, and 2000s, uh, people assumed that the, the structure of the governments was such that they just would you know, plod along and eventually wither in the face of this uh, rapid-moving information space. And when we saw the Arab Spring, I think many people thought this was, uh, you know, an accentuation point. It was verifying this assumption. But what happened was the governments drew the opposite lesson. They said, we need to counter this very quickly. And when the Snowden disclosures came out, I believe it provided a kind of blueprint for them as to how to do it. And since then, we've seen an assault on civil society. That's what we're documenting in the lab.
0: And when you say them, which governments are we talking about here? Who took Snowden and turned it into a blueprint for how to surveil their citizens?
5: Well, I have no evidence that the governments actually took that as a blueprint because presumably this would be conversations happening behind closed doors. I say this by way of inference in terms of uh, the way that most governments around the world have adopted within their um, portfolio around cybersecurity resources and capabilities being directed at secretive spy agencies that used to operate in the shadows. Now they're moving to the top of the hierarchy in terms of dealing with cybersecurity, And it comes from the empirical research that we've done. So we've studied targeted digital attacks on different sectors of civil society now for about eight years. And some of these are ad hoc case studies. We've done also some very rigorous comparative research. And what we're seeing is that NGOs are being routinely compromised. And it's probably not surprising to say that when you, you look around and you you read in the newspaper day after day about huge data breaches and governments being penetrated. The difference with civil society is they lack capacity to deal with it. Most human rights organizations, civil society groups, simply don't have the financial resources to deal properly with cybersecurity. Typically, they have one person who plugs in the printer, let alone deal with advanced, persistent threats coming from China.
0: Is it mainly China, or is it, is it a kind of superpower phenomenon, mm-hmm. or is this filtering all the way down to smaller regimes, and, and regimes that we traditionally thought were themselves, as you said, incompetent, but turn out to be more competent than we thought?
5: So I I think it's a general trend, and it's a trend that includes the superpowers. The superpowers set the kind of template for this, and and much of the techniques come from them. And, of course, they're, they're generating the private sector, Marketplace around this, so the the companies that serve the great powers then look for alternatives and look to the global south, but I, I will say it also includes some of the least connected, least obvious countries. One of our reports that was really striking involved the Ethiopian government. A country that you'd think has you know, very few internet-connected people, which is true. But nonetheless, the Ethiopian government employed advanced commercial spyware of a British firm to spy on an Ethiopian journalist in the United States. That to me is a sign of what I'm talking about here, that just because a country is is poor and it doesn't have a lot of internet penetration, doesn't mean that the autocratic ruler doesn't have enough money to go out and purchase the most advanced spyware off the shelf and target what it considers to be its primary threat,
0: which is not necessarily another government, it's a journalist in the United States. So where's the good news in this? We've been hearing this is an event to talk about power and technology, and there's a tendency for people to fear the worst. So let's hear some good news. I
5: think that, fortunately, there is a a growing awareness about this. At Citizen Lab, we've been really lucky to have, I think we've had something like 14 separate reports covered on the front pages of either New York Times or The Washington Post in the last eight years, Our reports have led to initiatives now within Europe and elsewhere to curb the market for the abuse of commercial spyware. The Vossenar arrangement, which typically deals with dual-use military technologies, was recently revised to include regulation around this type of technology as well as mass surveillance technology. Companies in reaction to the Snowden disclosures are building into their equipment into their services end-to-end encryption users are becoming more aware gradually educated about the risks so there's a great opportunity here to start reacting to this much like i think the climate change analogy and the environmental movement is the analogy we need to be working with here we're at the very early days where you know back i can remember when i was a child people just throwing garbage and polluting and not really thinking about it now that would be considered totally inappropriate and we think about recycling now. That's how we need to think about threats in the information environment moving forward.
0: And then how much time have we got? Because that's always the question with climate change. So, And this is a kind of arms race in a way. It's yeah. a battle between two groups of forces who are trying to do it quicker than the other. It'll take time, especially if it involves re-education, it'll take time. I mean, The fear that a lot of people have with this technology is just the pace of change yeah. means that we're always playing catch-up, and eventually we'll be left behind.
5: I do think there's a real urgency to this right now, because the vast majority of the Internet's population comes from countries like China, India either countries that are illiberal democracies, maybe they went through a democratic transition or they're sliding back into autocracy or authoritarianism now, and that could be reinforcing if if there's not some resistance to it. That's why the China model, I think, is particularly important because it it may uh, provide a viable model of how to thrive in a dynamic internet ecosystem while sustaining the regime and one-party rule many countries will find that attractive. So I I think we need to get on this very quickly. And I feel like, you know, there's an urgency to the work I'm doing. And and I think people in my community feel that way as well.
0: So this was a conference about power and politics. And it didn't talk much about Trump or Brexit or any of that stuff. But after a day of this, what I found myself thinking was, There was not much consensus, but one thing that most people there agreed on is there's only one organization in the world that has any interest in trying to take on the big tech companies of Silicon Valley and and try and check whether they are actually ripping us off or possibly even kind of exploiting us and maybe even have scary kinds of power over us. And that's the EU. The EU is the only body in the world that has the technical capability and the kind of capacity to take on Google. And that's the one organisation that we in Britain have decided that we don't need. And maybe we're right. I'm not saying we're wrong. I think the people who voted for Brexit assume that you're much better off being in the power of Mark Zuckerberg than you are being in the power of a bunch of faceless Belgian bureaucrats. But I would read the article in The New Yorker about how people in Silicon Valley think they're trying to cheat death. And They're not bad people, I don't think. What they are are young people who have so much money, unbelievable amounts of money, and they just don't know what to do with it or with themselves. So they're trying to assume that there must be some way they can just live forever. So they're not bad, but they're kind of crazy. And I think it's a real question. Would you rather be in the hands of those people or a bunch of faceless Belgian bureaucrats? I'm not sure, but I think I know which I prefer but maybe that's a conversation for another time. What we're going to do next week is another one of our joint podcasts with the LRB. And we'll be talking to John Lanchester, who writes novels, but he also writes fantastic essays about just about everything. And it includes technology, but also money. He explains money, and we're going to get him to explain money and technology to us. It'll be with Helen. Do join us next week. Something else that we should tell you about is the Cambridge Literary Festival, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. It runs from the 18th of April through to the 23rd. It's a really exciting event. I know everywhere has a literary festival. Now this is one of the best ones. Uh, There are all sorts of people who are giving talks broadly about politics. John Simpson, Harriet Harman, Pankaj Mishra. And of course, there's lots of other stuff too. We've got a New Statesman debate about whether we're reliving the 1930s or not. There's a debate about Brexit. A lot of these events are sold out, but there are some tickets left for a few of them. If you go to the Cambridge Literary Festival website, you can find out what's still available. I really recommend it. It's great. I'm sorry, that's a lot to take in. I'll stop now. Do join us next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics.